Now it's been about maybe 45 seconds. We don't do well with silence and we don't do well with waiting. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at this idea of waiting because it's unbearable. But yet so often throughout scripture, what we find is there are people who are waiting, longing, looking to see for something to take place. There might not be anything to people that's more difficult than it is to wait. And as we go into a familiar passage of scripture that we've all read, that we've had read to us probably at family gatherings during Christmas time, you can go ahead and turn there, Luke chapter 2. This morning, my, my hope and desire as we journey through Luke chapter 2 over the course of the next three weeks is one, it feels weird whenever I open my Bible to Luke and it wasn't Matthew because we've been in Matthew since I think the month of June. But for us to turn into Luke and to go to Luke chapter 2, and I can vividly remember going to my grandparents' home in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and hearing my grandfather, I never called him grandfather, my grandpa, reading the story, the birth story out of Luke chapter 2. I can hear just his Oklahoma accent. I can hear just the way that he would say certain words. It's very familiar to me. It's very warm to me. But sometimes, if we're not careful, something that can become so familiar to us, we lose the wonder of it. We don't recognize how significant it actually is. And to try to give you a little bit of significance of this moment is putting ourselves in the shoes of those who are experiencing this story. And by that, I don't just simply mean Mary and Joseph. I'm talking about an entire community, nation, and even really world, whether they recognize it or not, of the significance of the birth of Jesus. And to, to do that, and I have gone back and forth because of time if we're going to do this, but we're going to do it. And so two things that I would encourage you to do, hang on tight. But number two is this is going to be hopefully maybe some things that you're not aware of that might be helpful to you in your own personal journey with the Lord. But also some things that I, I would encourage you, if you have a, a spare piece of paper or maybe a margin in your Bible, to take some notes today of some things that I have intentionally not put on the screen because I want you to engage and interact with it. And so to, to begin with, I want to take you to a passage that you're not expecting today, I'm sure, to Genesis chapter 5. So keep your hand or, or a finger or a piece of paper in Luke chapter 2. We'll be back there in just a moment. But we're going to journey to Genesis chapter 5, and I'm going to read to you uh, three verses and then highlight a few more out of this chapter. But Genesis chapter 5, look at verse 3. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now you remember, he had Cain and Abel. That, that did not turn out well. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years. He had other sons and daughters, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. Underline it. And he died. Let's go on. 
Let's see what happened to Seth. Verse 8, So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. What about his son, Enosh? Verse 11, So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. What about Canaan? So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Some of you are saying, is it Kenan or is it Kenan? If you say it with confidence, that's how it's supposed to be pronounced. <laughs> what about Mahalel? Yeah. So all the days, verse 17, so all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. What about Jared? Verse 20, so all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Then we get to Enoch. Enoch is unusual. It says Enoch, verse 24, walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Then Methuselah, the oldest man who's ever lived. Verse 27, so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And he had a son. His name was Lamech. Lamech, verse 31, it says, so all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Some people have asked, why did God include Genesis chapter 5? Sometimes we have these lineages that we read of in Scripture. But specifically this one, if you read through it, there's this cadence and this rhythm of someone who's been born, lived an incredibly long time, and it ends, and he died. It's known as the graveyard of Genesis chapter 5. It's known as the graveyard. And when you go to a graveyard, what you obviously are recognizing is this is a place where people have been laid to rest. It reminds us of death. Death is a reality. Well, why is death a reality? Well, go back two chapters to Genesis chapter 3 in your copy of the scriptures that you have. In Genesis chapter 3, we know that this is the familiar story of when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. He said, don't, you can eat from anything of the Garden of Eden except for the fruit of the knowledge of the, good, of the tree of good and evil. You can't eat from there. And the serpent comes along on the scene, deceives Eve, and she takes a bite of this fruit and gives also to her husband who was with her. And their eyes are opened because they have sinned against God. And God comes pursuing them as God always pursues, as we'll see in this story. God comes pursuing them and says, Adam, where are you? Even though he knows exactly where Adam is, but how is Adam going to respond? And Adam and Eve begin to go through the blame game of she made me do it. You gave me to her. Really, it's your fault, God. And she said, no, 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 it was the serpent's fault. He deceived me. And so we find after this that there's this consequence of sin, the fall. Specifically, he says to the serpent in verse, uh, or excuse me, let's go to verse 19 to begin with. He, he says in verse 19, uh, specifically he's talking to Adam at this moment. He says, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread and you will return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. You're going to die. Not the most pleasant news on this December the 5th in 2021 that you might have wanted to hear today. You're going to die because of sin. But in the midst of the most devastating moment, really of all of human history is Genesis 3, the fall of man. They had perfection. They had intimate fellowship relationship with the creator of the universe here in the Garden of Eden. And they chose to sin and rebel against God. And the consequence is death. But even in the midst of this, there is hope. Look at verse 15. Genesis chapter 3. It says, and I will put, this is talking to the serpent now, God talking to the serpent. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head 
and you shall bruise him on the heel. You say, well, why are we reading this? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Mark it in your Bible. This is the what's called the Proto-Evangelion, which is just a fancy word for first gospel. This is the first proclamation of good news. This is the first messianic prophecy. This would have been a verse of Scripture that every Jewish boy and girl growing up would be, man, when is someone going to be born a seed of some woman who is going to finally crush and deal with the deceiver and the serpent who led us into sin and, and caused us and, and, and influenced, deceived us that we would choose willingly to sin against a holy God? And what you find is when you come to Genesis chapter 5, often what we all do is when we want something, we want it immediately. So we think, okay, there's this prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And so, God, you're going to probably take care of this just as soon as possible. And you get to Genesis chapter 5, that graveyard chapter, and you begin to read through it. And you go, man, Adam's living a long time, but he died. But maybe his son, Seth, maybe he's going to be this seed who's going to be that Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, that's going to deal with this consequence of sin, that is death. But oh, man, he lived a long time, but he died too. Well, maybe it'll be his son. And we hear Enosh lives for 905 years. Man, he's really going. Maybe he's not going to die. He's going to be the one who's going to be the seed of the woman who's going to conquer and vanquish the consequence of sin, that is death. But he dies too. And on and on through that graveyard, what you have is you just have this drumbeat of death, death, death. And literally, hundreds of years are going by of waiting, longing, looking to see when will Genesis 3.15 come to realization. And from here, you, you have other moments of glimmers of hope. I'm, I'm going to take you through just a very, very quick, just 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 timeline of, of history that goes on. But what you have is in Genesis chapter 12, you have this another glimmer of hope where God calls out Abraham among all the people of the world. He calls out Abraham and says, through you and through your seed, I'm going to bless everybody. There's, there's that hope that through you is, is really going to come the, the, the Messiah. And people continue to wait, and, and he doesn't have a son for the longest time until he's old in age, and he has Isaac. And so I imagine, I wonder if people were wondering, is Isaac, is he the seed of the woman who's to be born that's going to come along and deal with this issue? But as we know, Isaac dies, but again, the, the nation of Israel has now been established through his son Jacob and his 12 sons, to where we have the tribes of, of Israel. But even with the tribes of Israel... They're his sons uh, in, in the nation of Israel. They, they, they decide to sell one of their brothers off into slavery, and he goes to Egypt, and God uses what was intended for bad. God brings good out of it, as we read in Genesis chapter 50, of when Joseph is really the savior and the liberator of his people who are going through a famine in Israel. They journey to Egypt to be able to survive, but then they become enslaved in Egypt. For 400 years, the people of Israel are enslaved. And so now, not only are they waiting and longing for the Messiah, they're waiting and longing to be delivered out of Egypt. And God raises up someone named Moses. Maybe Moses is this one, but as we know, Moses leads them out of Egypt. He is the great deliverer, the great redeemer of the people of Israel out of the slavery of Egypt. But he dies too. Then they think, well, what we're missing here to really be able to have 
an established force and presence upon this earth is we need a king. We're back in the nation of Israel, but we need a king like the other nations. And so Saul rises up to be their first king. He looked the part, he acted the part, but he was not the king that they needed. And so here comes another one, a shepherd boy by the name of David, who was from all places, Bethlehem. David rises up and here is just this mighty warrior king, does incredible things for the nation of Israel. But even David has his weaknesses and his frailties and he wanders off with a woman and murders a man. His house rebels against him and the lineage that he leaves is his son Solomon. And then after Solomon, the nation of Israel splits in two. They have civil war. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel. And there in this moment, people are wondering, will one of these kings rise up? Will there be someone who's going to rise up and deal and really live out that, that prophecy that was mentioned so long ago that now it just sounds like a fable? It just sounds like a legend? It just sounds like a myth? But maybe there's just this glimmer of hoping, longing, and waiting that perhaps someone will come along and, and deliver us. But then, next thing they know, the superpower of the day no longer is Egypt, is Assyria. Assyria comes along and it takes the northern tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes of Israel, and just decimates them and scatters them, disperses them in 722 BC. But you still have the southern kingdom. There's still a remnant. There's, there's still a people called out by God, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin there in the southern kingdom where Jerusalem would be. And they, for, for hundreds of years, continue to, to, to live in that place, but they continue to rebel against God. They continue to drift away from God. They continue to long and to wait, but as they long and as they wait, can you relate to this? I'm waiting, 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 but as I wait, I'm getting impatient, I'm becoming intolerable, and I begin to not wonder at God, but I begin to wander from God. And they begin to wander from God worshiping all the idols that were available to them. And God lets them know sin always separates and sin always causes consequence. Sin always separates and sin always has consequences. The consequence of this sin is there's going to be a power that's going to come in, is going to take you out, and eventually it happens. The next superpower rises up on the scene, Babylon, takes out the city of Jerusalem and the two southern tribes that are left there in Judah takes them back to Babylon. But even in the midst of that, there's glimmer, there's hope of where God lets them know through the prophet Jeremiah, it's only going to be 70 years. But at the end of that 70 years, the, the hope that they have is that they're told that when the new superpower comes into play, Persia, King Cyrus says, you can go back to Jerusalem, you can go back and rebuild the temple. And there's celebration, there's cause for this of, of hey, we're going to go back and, and this is going to be the beginning of, of, a, of a new stage. And maybe there will be hope and relief because we've been waiting and longing for, for the relief and for the consolation of the Lord to come upon us. And they go back and they rebuild the, the temple and then Nehemiah goes back and he rebuilds the, the walls of Jerusalem. But when you come to the end of that time period, when you come to the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, there's all kinds of prophecies. Isaiah 7.14, And she will conceive and give birth as a virgin, and her son you shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Micah 5.2 says there's going to be one that's going to come from the, the least of these areas who's going to shoot up like a shoot, and, and it's going to be one who's going to be born here, and they know this is going to be the birthplace, hopefully, of their Messiah, that, that fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, verses, verse 15. But imagine this. You're finally back from the power that is Babylon, and God goes silent for 400 years. 
Talk about waiting and longing and hoping. God, what do you have to say? God, what is your plan? Will you deliver us? And then some people consider it a silent night, but if you read the book of Revelation, it's almost an invasion (laughs) of God sending Jesus, his son, even though the dragon, as it says in Revelation, is really the prince of the air, the power of this age. And God says, I'm going to send in my son, the last place that you probably expect him, even though I've prophesied this hundreds of years in advance. And it's here that we come to this passage, that even though Persia is no longer on the scene, and in that 400-year period, Greece rose up, they fell down, now Rome has risen up, the greatest power that we've ever seen. And it's in the midst of this Roman occupation that the people of Israel are still waiting, longing for the Messiah, almost to the point that they really don't really believe it anymore. What they really want, not so much as a Messiah, what they really want is they want just simply someone who could come in and be a conqueror and a ruler to get them out of Roman occupation. They actually want something that's pretty significant, but even as significant as it was to get out of the thumb, under the thumb of Rome, that's actually far too small. God is saying, you're short-sighted. Your vision is far too small. What you need is someone who's even bigger than that. And I'm going to have him be born, not in a palace, but he's going to be born in a manger. So we come to Luke chapter 2. A nation waiting, a community waiting, individuals waiting, and a world that's waiting and they don't even get it. I, I, I want to read a passage to you before we jump into Luke that God placed on my heart probably about 2 a.m. last night, and um, I wrote it down this morning. If you want to turn there with me, you can. Just keep your hand there in Luke chapter 2. But in Romans chapter 8, perhaps perhaps my favorite chapter of all Scripture, I, I say that just about every chapter, but Romans chapter 8, I'm just going to highlight a couple of things, but in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, what's interesting is not only is a nation waiting, but creation longs for the redemption of, that will come through Christ. It says, verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. Verse 21, it says that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Pastor, what's that saying? Not only were individuals just like, come, Lord Jesus, come. I don't even know your name. Messiah, come, fulfill Genesis 3. Even creation itself is saying, man, things were perfect. No thorns, no bristles, no briars, none of that. And then you guys decided to rebel against God by eating that fruit. And we have been longing and groaning and waiting, even creation itself, for the Messiah, the anointed one, to show up on the scene and to change everything. And so don't, don't belittle and don't minimalize the story of Luke 2, regardless of how familiar we are with it. Recognize the, the grand moment that God is fulfilling here. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God knows exactly what he's doing at the exact moment it needed to be done for a whole world, let alone for us in this room, in your life. He's not haphazard. He is in control and he's sovereign. He's providential in your life. You are here. 
On December 5th, when you could be somewhere else, maybe the last pretty day of December, you are here. And if we are going to engage with the Word of God and read the story of the birth of Jesus from the Word of God, if we don't recognize that we are encountering the living God through His Word and and we walk away with indifference, then we have missed an opportunity this morning. We've missed the grandeur of what God has accomplished 2,000 years ago. So we're going to just journey through these 20 verses. Take notes. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now in the days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now, what's a census? A census is what you might think it is. It's, it's gathering information of who all is in the land. Specifically, Rome was doing this for two primary reasons, two purposes. It had everything to do with uh, how many fighting men do we have to be able to fight here, to be uh, military, that we could take some of your men from the nation that we have conquered to actually fight for Rome. And then also, it always has to do with money. (laughs) They want to take a census in order to know how can we tax and how can we get more money because... Under Roman rule and reign, though you were paying taxes, even if you weren't a part of the Roman Empire, you were under the rule of the Roman Empire, the taxes that you paid were giving you a few perks. One of the perks was what's what's called the Pax Romana, which is Roman peace. And it was during this day and time that there were no major wars really going on. There might be a skirmish that would come up every now and again, but for the most part, the known world was at a time of relative peace, which was incredibly unusual for that period of time for there to be that kind of peace. And when there's peace, productivity can follow that. It's hard to build roads when you're having to build weapons. And Rome at this time is not having to be as concerned, though they have an incredible military. We know about the Roman legions. But they're also able, because they have subdued and conquered the known world, they're able now, because of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, they're able to actually do some incredible things with with technology at the time that, that they were able to build what were known as the Roman roads. Even today, you could go back to roads that were built thousands of years ago, and they are still probably in better condition than I-24. I mean, it's remarkable that those things are still standing and functional if you wanted to walk on them and not have a big old pothole. And as a result of that, there's communication, there's trade. Uh, Greek is kind of the the common tongue, like English is for a lot of business that we even do in the world uh, today. And it's during this reign and rule of Rome over all of the known world, including Israel, that at this time, the Caesar or the ruler of Rome is a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus is not his real name. His real name is Gaius Octavius or Gaius Octavian. And this was a guy that was really well-respected by the Senate of Rome to where they gave him not only the title, obviously, of Caesar, because he is the ruler, but they also called him Augustus, which basically was, you are the majestic one, you are the honored one, you are from the God of gods, and a few inscriptions even called him, get this, the Savior of the world. Interesting that the Savior of the world is about to pave the way with his Roman roads, if you will, for the birth of the Savior of the world. Now, it talks about a guy named Quirinius in verse 2. You go, why are we talking about this? Because verse 2 has been a passage of Scripture that has had some discrepancy surrounding it, some, some contention around it. Because 
One of the most reliable historians that we have is a guy by the name of Josephus. He was a Jewish historian. And Josephus and other historical accounts say that there was a governor of Syria by the name of Quirinius that was the governor from anywhere probably around 6 AD to 9 AD. And what could happen is you or your grandchild or your child could go onto a campus at some higher place of education and a professor could say, see, the Bible's not true. There's no way that Jesus could be born when Quirinius was governor of Syria between 6 AD and 9 AD. The Bible's not reliable. The Bible's not true because he was not governor of Syria until 6 to 9 AD, somewhere in that time frame. See, Bible's wrong. Your faith is unraveled. I'm not one to want to shy away from controversy when it comes to Scripture because I believe Scripture is entirely reliable, inerrant, and fully sufficient for everything that we need for salvation. And so when I read this, I began to study, and I found a lot of other scholars and commentators, and they're not trying to loophole anything. They just said simply this, and I've seen it time and time again. When you begin to doubt the Word of God, or is God reliable, is God trustworthy, remember, God is true to His Word because He is God. Titus chapter 1 says He cannot lie. And here is God with his written revelation to us, telling us what the facts are. Luke, as many of you know who's writing this gospel account, is maybe one of the most meticulous writers of all of Scripture. He loves the details. He's a historian, if you will. And as he's writing this, he's just sharing what everyone would have read. And be like, yeah, yeah, Quirinius, he was governor of Syria. And here's what's interesting. Sometimes technology archaeology doesn't catch up to scripture until centuries later. In the 1700s, specifically 1764, there was a fragment of marble that was excavated from a place just outside of Rome, and it was talking about in this uh, uh, marble fragment, there was an inscription on it. It wasn't complete, but it had an inscription on it that was talking about there was an individual who was governor of Syria for two terms. And he was actually governor of Syria for a term, had a break, and then he was governor of Syria again for a term. The name is not there, but what's interesting is as archaeology and as historians are beginning to find out is it seems like we keep doubting Scripture and things keep popping up to show the validity and reliability of Scripture. The same is true of the passage in the book of Daniel. We don't have time to get into it, but there was a huge controversy in the book of Daniel when historians were looking at it. And then years later, I think it was in the 18 or 1900s, they did some archaeological find, and they're like, oh yeah, Scripture was right. Why do I share that with you? Well, one is this. You might think at times, can I trust God or can I trust His Word? Friend, you can trust the Word of God. If, If the world has not cut up to it yet, eventually it will, and even if it never does, God's Word is true. Study it, read it, dive into it, rely upon it because he is reliable. Now, in verse 3, it says that everyone was to go on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now, some people believe that obviously Rome is dictating this census that's going to happen. Other people think the idea of going to your own city to register or to do a census probably wasn't Rome's stipulation. They just didn't care. Just tell us who you are, how many are in your family, all that kind of stuff. Give us a census. They think it might have been a Jewish stipulation that said you need to go back to your own city, Um, specifically for the reason of they were big on what tribe are you from, go back to where you originate from, so that way we also get an idea. And so whether it's 
Rome or Caesar Augustus decreeing this census that is to be taken, or whether there is this Jewish stipulation that you got to go back to your own city, regardless of whatever Rome or the nation of Israel are doing, recognize that over them is the orchestrating hand of God in all of this because he says, my son, the savior of the world, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And right now, Mary, who I already said, you're going to have a baby. Joseph, I said, you're going to marry that girl because she's going to have a baby and you're going to name his name Jesus and he's going to forgive the people of their sins. I need you to get to Bethlehem because I'm true to my word. I got to live out. I got to fulfill Micah chapter two. You're in Nazareth right now up here north. You got to go south in order to get to Bethlehem. And so here's a census that is taken. A reminder of this. There are a lot of us today that were hard at work. A lot of men and women in our world today are hard at work. There's a lot of policies and laws that are in place that are being enacted, maybe obeyed or disobeyed. But can I just encourage you and remind you, stand firm that God is over all of this. I know at times we can fret and wring our hands and wonder because things look different than they did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 100 years ago. But God has been orchestrating and overseeing all of this. And he's not a God who just wound up the clock that is the world and stepped back and said, good luck. He, in this moment, in the most intense way, is intervening into the history of the world by the sending of his son, Jesus. Look at verse 4. So Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, for them to go up to Bethlehem, that's unusual for us, because normally when we look at a map, we see Nazareth is here. And Bethlehem is here. We look, well, that's south, so we're going to go down to Bethlehem. But in that day and time, they weren't traveling by car. And so it's interesting, oftentimes when they were talking about going somewhere, they would look at the topography of a map. And they would say, for us to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, we're going uphill. (laughs) It's going to be upward that way. And I, I don't blame them. If I'm having to go up somewhere, I'm not going to be saying I'm going down to Bethlehem if I have to work that hill and i got to go up it. I'm going up to Bethlehem. And so it's at this moment that we might go, oh, that's an interesting story. This is, this is, a, this, this is nice, but you know, g- get on with the birth of Jesus. I, I just want you to realize this is like 80 miles. Maybe if you were a healthy individual, you might be able to journey 20 miles a day by foot. With a pregnant woman? Full term, you're looking at probably maybe, maybe 10 miles a day. You're maybe looking at like a week, week and a half of a journey. I know oftentimes we see this picture of Mary on a donkey and Joseph walking alongside of it. We don't know. Could very well be a nine-month woman pregnant walking up to Bethlehem. They think perhaps, oh, we got to do what Rome's saying. Or we got to do what the Jewish stipulation is. Or perhaps they've heard the word of the Lord through the birth announcement that was given to Joseph and to Mary. And they're like, maybe they know Micah 5 too. Oh, this makes sense. We need to go to Bethlehem. Even in your condition. Because the word of the Lord is to be fulfilled. So they make their way up to Bethlehem. Now, I've never been pregnant. Uh, but I have had kidney stones, and I have had uh, cousins of mine who girl cousins because you know girls have babies, and so uh, 
I have girl cousins of mine who have also been inherited with this wonderful kidney disease from our parents, and we, we generate and we form kidney stones. And they have told me, and so I feel like I can share this, they have told me that they said, I would rather give birth than have a kidney stone because the kidney stone was far more painful. Now, granted, the outcome of birth is far different than the outcome of a kidney stone. That might have something to do with it. But, but, but what I found is, is that when you are waiting, but when you're waiting in discomfort, can you imagine just the waiting and the longing of, Joseph, are we almost there? I, I, I'm so tired. A lot of people believe they're probably in a caravan of individuals as they were making their way to Bethlehem, others who were needing to make their way there. And here they show up, and you guys have probably heard sermons on this countless times of verse 7 where there was no room for them in the end, and how oftentimes if we're not mindful, even as a follower of Jesus today, are you, are you carving out that room of Jesus in your life? Is he sitting on the throne of your heart? For so many in our world today, they're not making room for Jesus we don't have time to go into that sermon specifically today, but it is interesting that there was no room for Jesus there in the inn. And then Luke, just very simply, there's not a lot of pomp and circumstance of the birth of Jesus in this moment. It just says, and she gave birth. He doesn't share any of the details. It's just, and she gave birth. Healthy baby boy. Did what they would do in that day and time, wrap him in cloths. It was believed, one, because they liked that restriction, but two, it was believed that they wanted to make sure that their limbs would stay straight and not be maligned, so they would wrap a, a child up so that way the child would have straight limbs. And they're here in Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. In fact, Bethlehem, as we're going to study the book of Ruth in the month of May in 2022, Bethlehem is where the fields of Boaz would have been located. And it's in the fields of Boaz where Boaz meets Ruth, and Boaz is the kinsman redeemer of Ruth, and Ruth is in the lineage and line of Jesus. And what's interesting is here where the bread is, the, the wheat's harvested, the bread is, is, is made, the city smelled so good as the house of bread, and here the bread of life is about to be born unto a woman under the law. So they're waiting, waiting, God orchestrating, and then he's born. And then verse 8, look at who he decides to share this information with. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks or flock by, by night. Shepherds were probably the, the character that at least I normally was, like in the Christmas play at church, because I didn't want to read lines. I just wanted to kind of be involved, but not too much a part of it. And so they could put a fake beard on me and give me a staff and a robe. And I was like, yeah, I'm in the play. Some of you were probably that same character. And, and I just remember being like, oh man, the shepherds were the best, but most people would not have cared for shepherds in this day and time. They were considered untrustworthy, nomadic, dirty, kind of the low rung of, of, of the ladder of, of society. People didn't want to associate with with the shepherds, and yet God says, I'm going to go to them, the low, the dirty, the outcast, and tell them what has just happened. should be a good reminder of us that sometimes we think, well, I, I know I need to share the gospel with people, but you make me uncomfortable, so I'm not going to share with you because you make me uncomfortable. And God's saying, no, 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 this is good news for all the world. And share it with anybody and everybody. The birth of Jesus changed everything. And so these guys are getting this announcement they're about to, and it's going to change not only their lives, but it's going to change their business forever. Here on the hillside of Bethlehem, as they're tending to these flocks of sheep, it would be understood that 
a majority of these sheep were going to be tended and raised so that they could later be given to the temple for sacrifice. Because the sacrificial system has been in place for, for an incredibly long time. Day after day, there would be sacrifice. Year after year on the Day of Atonement, there would be sacrifice. Blood would be spilt. A lamb would be slain. And Jesus is about to put them out of business, take a huge hit in their business because as John the Baptist, his cousin says in John chapter 1, he sees Jesus walking towards him. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so here we have verse 9 that says, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly, terribly frightened. Have you ever been in that situation where it's been incredibly dark, and then bam, a bright light would shine upon you? The glory of God is just, we can't even begin to describe how, how bright an aura this would have been. Uh, I'm not condoning this, but there were times that I might have, hypothetically speaking, gone onto a place that wasn't my property, such as a golf course with a fishing pole with some friends, and you might try to go fishing, and every once in a while, people would come around and shine a light on you. It's terrifying. You ran. I mean, you just went for it. You just got away as fast as you could, and the shepherds are just in a stupor of fear of, it's super dark out here, no electricity, you might get a flicker of a candle of some sort, and then all of a sudden just... This incredible light shines around them. And I want you to get this. The heavenly host hasn't shown up. This is one angel speaking on behalf, because that's what an angel was. He was a messenger of the Lord. Speaking on behalf of, of the Lord, of, of, a, of a proud dad, if you will, saying, tell him I've had a son. Let him know. Get the news out there. We're going to have an announcement, a birth announcement right now of the birth of Jesus. Go tell those guys right there in Bethlehem. <laughs> You're out of jobs. But go tell them because they need to know, even if they're the lowest of the wrong in society, I want them to know. Verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, as angels often do in Scripture. Uh, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Essentially, he says, hey, guys, I got a message for you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when God and his message and his word goes out, it's proclaimed. And stop what you're doing and listen. I know very easily, there could be some of you going, I've heard this story so many times. Where else could I be right now? Just remember, this: whether it's the Christmas story or whether it's the graveyard of Genesis 5, God in his goodness has decided to talk to you, to not leave you alone to try to figure things out. Specifically, the most important thing, which is, how could I possibly be in a relationship with him? God cares and loves you. And some of you, I know, are going through some things that are incredibly difficult. As I mentioned, life hits you between the eyes, right in the gut. I just want to remind us that God in his goodness has given us his word, his son, salvation, and hope. And he shares this with these shepherds. And, and when he shares this news, it's, he says that it's good news. 
And think about this. If someone all of a sudden showed up, bright spotlight on you in the middle of a dark evening, and they begin talking to you, you're probably a little bit petrified. You're a little bit nervous. You're a little bit anxious of, what are you about to say? Am I in trouble? I remember years ago, I was pastoring the church in Oklahoma, and I had shared some news with a family member that was kind of hard news to share. And this family member's uh, uh, uncle came into my office on a Sunday morning, and he was walking right towards me. He was a large man, and I was afraid that I was about to get punched out. (laughs) He said, I need to talk to you. i got to share something with you. I was like, let's go to my office. I don't want other people to see the preacher get just punched in the face. And so we made our way to our office. And I'm a little bit like, I'm not compromising my belief in any way. I'm not. But really don't want to get punched. So what's, what's the news? And he said, thank you for staying true to what you believe about marriage. And you didn't compromise. They needed to hear that. It went from terrified to, that's some good news. <laughs> I received that news. I received that word in my life right now. And what happened is, is these, or these shepherds are just terrified, but all of a sudden they're like, no, 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 don't be scared. We got good news for you of great joy. Man, that's good news. Good news brings joy. And it's interesting. Remember what I told you, Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelion, the, the first gospel, the first good news? Man, that would have brought joy to people of a hope of one who's going to come and deal with the consequence of sin. And here it's being fulfilled. It's the same word, euangelion, good news. It's going to provide joy for you. And not just for for you, for everybody. This isn't reserved for a specific group. It's not reserved for the shepherds. It's not reserved for the Jewish people. It's not reserved. It's reserved for everybody. A Savior has been born for you. It's the plural you. It's y'all. It's for everybody. Born in the city of David. Micah 5, 2 again being fulfilled. In verse 12, it's, it's kind of an obvious thing that the angels are going to assume. They don't. Did you notice the angels don't command the shepherds to go find the baby? They kind of assume, uh, this is kind of a big deal. <laughs> We've shown up. The glory of the Lord is all around you. We just told you that a Savior has been born for you. So this is how you're going to find him. I don't even have to tell you. You should go find him. Sometimes that's how I feel. And I imagine that's how you feel when you know the good news of Jesus, of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection for your sin and for your eternity. And you want people to get it. And you're like, it's such good news. I shouldn't have to to, to even ask you, do you want to receive Jesus? You should just obviously go to Jesus because he's so good. And yet we we have friends in our life, family members in our life, coworkers in our life. I don't have room for him in my life at this time. It's like, man, it's good news for you. So... Look at verse 13, or excuse me, go back to verse 11 for just a moment. It says in verse 11, a Savior is born. Now, for a Savior to be born, a Savior would imply that you need to be saved from something, some kind of danger, some kind of problem. And in the weeks to come, uh, next week and December 19th, we're going to see what this Savior is saving us from. That's what a Savior does. That means there's something hard, there's a problem, there's a danger. We need saving And so that's why he's shown up. Verses 13 to 14, I don't have time to get into it because of the time limit that we have today, but it talks about here that the angels show up, this heavenly host, and it says they 
they're praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. So I've studied this this week and I don't have time to get into it super deep, but it's interesting. They said, um, if you read through scripture, it, it never says that angels sing, but we normally think of angels singing because it says they're praising and saying, but sometimes praising can just be with your words. And it was interesting. It would require some more study, but if you go to the book of Job, it talks about how the sons of God referring to angels were singing before the creation account, before the fall. And the next time we really see explicitly angels singing is in Revelation 5, when they're gathered around the throne and they're singing. It's almost as if they've been in this interim period between before the creation of the world, before the fall, and they're at the end of things when Christ returns. And they've been on this like this pause button of like, we're not able to praise yet, but you who have been redeemed Lift up your voice and praise God. Sing to him who is worthy to sing. Because it's going to come time when we're going to get to sing a new song. We're going to get to join that chorus. But we can't understand the idea of falling from God or needing redemption from God. But you can. So worship and sing and praise him. That was just extra. Okay, verse 15. Look at what it says. Verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then. See this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which they were told, uh, told them by the shepherds. But Mary, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds, they went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. At this point in verse 15, the angels are like, or the shepherds are like, let's go. And so what you see is you see a bit of a pattern of the sharing of good news. The shepherds heard the good news. It was revealed to them. Once the good news was revealed to them, they obviously believed the news that was shared with them because they went. If they didn't believe that there was a baby, a savior who had been born lying in a manger in Bethlehem, they wouldn't have gone Obviously, they believe because they went. It's not our obedience that causes us to have salvation, but our obedience should hopefully be a marker of our salvation. And so they go and they went. They pursued Jesus. For those of you who believe, are you pursuing Christ that you could encounter him, the Savior of your soul? And then verses 17 and 18, it says the shepherds proclaimed And they even wandered, they marveled, they were amazed. They're they're, they're so in awe of what it is that they have heard from the angels and what they have seen with their own eyes that that they can't help but, but proclaim this, to share this, and then to step back and just basically worship. That's what we should be doing. For those of you who have placed your faith in Christ, you've experienced the salvation of your soul, the forgiveness of your sin, that you've heard that good news, you've received that news, you believe that news, you pursue after Jesus, and you want other people to know it. And while you're doing that, you're just worshiping him. You're just in marvel and in awe of him. They're, they're witnesses, it says. A witness shares the story of God's part and their part. And in verse 19, Mary ponders. I think it would be good for us in just a moment for you to marvel to worship, to ponder these things that you've heard today. Maybe something that you haven't heard. Maybe that reminder of that drumbeat of death from Genesis 5. 
But there's hope because a Savior has been born. But in verse 20, again, when we hear the glory of the Lord, when we hear the good news that there's been a Savior born to us, they glorify, they praise God of what they had heard and what they had seen. I shared this with, uh, with the men that I prayed with this morning. My aim and desire for our time today with song and with message is that by the time that we leave, is that we would live out verse 20. More than anything else, well, honestly, more than anything else, I want you to come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. In this room specifically, I know many of your stories. What, what, I'm, what I'm calling us to is you may not have seen this in the flesh because you can't get in the time machine to go back 2,000 years ago, but you have heard this story. Do not go into this Christmas season like you did maybe last one, or two years ago, or five years ago. I'm, I'm reminded of even when I was six years old, I gave my life to the Lord. I loved Christmas before I was six. Man, that year... Got saved August 31st, 1987. That Christmas was awesome. I had tasted and seen that the Lord is good personally. And in just a few months, I was going to get to celebrate Jesus in a way that I'd never quite been able to celebrate Him before. And you know what? There's been years between the age of 6 and the age of 40. Well, I'm 40 now. I haven't yet celebrated in my 40th year. Between the age of six and 39, there's some years where I'm ashamed to say that it's just a story. It's personal to me. It's real to me. But if I've encountered the living God, and this isn't just for the Christmas story. I was telling the guys this morning, when you read your Bible in the morning, or maybe the evening, whatever your schedule is, and you just have that time with him, I understand that not every time you're going to go, oh, shining light of revelation to me and I know exactly what I'm going to do and I'm going to take this job and marry that guy I'm going to do this thing you don't always get that but what you get every time you read the word of God you have heard you have seen and you can marvel and praise the creator he talks to you through his word Henry Blackaby I love his statement God speaks to you today. Sometimes they're like, does he really talk to us like he did back then? I wish I had the burning bush. I wish I had a Red Sea experience. Then I would know God is at work. They would have done anything to have the Holy Spirit reside within them. To have the God of creation dwell within you through saving faith in Christ. And so, when you, when you dive into the Word, into time with Him, Henry Blackaby says, God speaks to us by the Holy Spirit through the Word, through prayer, through circumstances, and through others. God speaks. Sometimes, sometimes there's that 400 years of silence. But God's Word from the Old Testament was still available even those in that 400 years and they studied it you know what they didn't do (laughs) 
They didn't ever go back to idolatry. They stayed true to the one true God. Yeah, a lot of things happened in that 400 years, a lot of legalism. But there were some who were prepared and ready, like these shepherds, for the birth of a Messiah, for the one who is going to buck the trend of Genesis 5. Yeah, he's going to die, but he's not going to stay dead. Would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? Some of you this morning are waiting on something. Some of you maybe even said this statement. Well, once this happens, then I will. Once that happens, then I'll do this. Then I'll finally be at peace. Then, then I'll be content. Then I'll live for the Lord. Maybe once I get that job or get that spouse or I get retired or I really get my anger, anxiety dealt with. And I get it. At times, we have to wait. It's incredibly, incredibly hard to do. But here's some good news for you today on the biggest issue of your life when it comes to knowing your eternal destiny. God says you don't have to wait. There are many centuries, millennia, who had been waiting for this moment in history, the birth of Jesus. Waited to hear this good news, and you get to hear it. You get to respond to it. You get to receive it and wander and worship and ponder and proclaim and praise Jesus. And so in that passage, you'll remember when it says this in Luke 2, it says the days were completed for her, Mary, to give birth. Mary's pregnancy was completed because God, when the fullness of time came, sent forth his son to be born of a woman born under a law, not just so that he was born. He was born for the purpose that he might redeem those and they could receive adoption. Are you a part of the family? And I, I hope for in just a moment, we're going to sing. For some of you, the best thing you could do is praise God for what you've heard today. Just like the angels praised God, just like the shepherds praised and proclaimed God. And so you want to lift up your voice to the Lord and just sing. Do it. Others of you, maybe you need a little bit of time of introspection like a Mary. You need to ponder and marvel. And maybe in just a moment, you don't, you don't even stand. You don't even look up. You're just in a moment of prayer with Jesus, pondering and marveling at this story. So, Father, I pray that in this moment we would either praise or we would ponder, but none of us would leave indifferent having heard from you today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand? If you need to sit, you stay seated.